0: This episode of the Weekly Standard Podcast is sponsored by The Great Courses. The Great Courses brings the world's greatest professors to your fingertips. With more than 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, better living, and more, The Great Courses are available on digital download and streaming or DVD and CD. Best of all, you can listen to or watch The Great Courses at your own pace without the pressure of homework or exams. And now, for a limited time only... The Great Courses is giving our listeners an offer of up to eighty percent off the original price of selected courses, including the Decisive Battles of World History. For this limited time, eighty percent offer. Go to thegreatcourses.com/ws to find out more. That's thegreatcourses.com/ws. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening. Mr. and Mrs. North America and all the ships at sea. This is Philip Terzian, literary editor of the Weekly Standard, with my weekly podcast on the books and arts section of the Weekly Standard. And this week, we're looking at the May 4th issue. And the first, uh, the lead piece in the section, is a review of um, a new biography of Eugene O'Neill, Eugene O'Neill, A Life in Four Acts, by Robert M. Dowling, published by Yale and uh, it is reviewed by John Simon, the uh, veteran um, uh, drama and literary critic. Um, Eugene O'Neill is, uh, um, uh, I guess, still retains, he's the only American playwright uh, to have won the Nobel Prize in Literature. I think still retains his status as the most distinguished American playwright, the most famous American playwright, uh, perhaps closely followed by Tennessee Williams but um, O'Neill's reputation um, which uh, got started in the 1920s um, is still relatively high um, a century later and of course O'Neill's career was divided into various parts there's a kind of early middle and late O'Neill and ironically enough the middle O'Neill which is the period in the 1920s and early 30s when he wrote um, uh, The Hairy Ape, Strange Interlude, Morning Becomes Electra. These long, um, rather uh, self-consciously profound um, dramas were widely um, admired in their day. I think he won uh, a certain number of Pulitzer Prizes. Um, But have been overshadowed in more recent times by his later work, which he actually worked on Um, later in his life and were never produced uh, during his lifetime. Uh, Certainly true of his what is regarded by many as his greatest play, Long Day's Journey into Night, but also um, others like A Moon for the Misbegotten and The Iceman Cometh. Uh, I guess The Iceman Cometh was produced when he was alive. But in any case, the later O'Neill seems to be the more admired O'Neill today. And this biography is, there have been a couple of standard um, and voluminous biographies of O'Neill, um, uh, one by Barbara and Arthur Gelb, one by Louis Schaeffer. John Simon seems to believe that this new um, life is uh, takes its place next to Schaeffer as the, an authoritative text. Certainly O'Neill is one of those great um, artists um, whose personal life is um, perhaps not as uh, admirable or um, uh, uh uh, quite as we would want it to be um, his artistic temperament seems to have um, led him in various directions and uh, that uh, were not so um, not so admirable and his family life was um, almost as tragic as his as his upbringing and as some of his plays uh, the, the, the horror of his upbringing as related in Long Day's Journey and Night seems to have been reflected in the way he treated his own children and Later life. So in any case, it's while not a, not a life most people would wish to emulate, it's a life um, that makes for interesting reading and certainly offers a lot of clues as to um, uh, what were the ingredients of his great plays. That is followed by a piece by Edward Acorn, who's a, a newspaper man in New England who has a, a alternate career, I might say, is writing about um, um, uh, early baseball history. And this is a book that he's reviewing uh, entitled The Colonel and Hug, The Partnership That Transformed the New York Yankees. And <clears throat> it answers, I suppose, the question that some baseball fans and others might ask is how did the New York Yankees, the the most dominant team in American baseball, become the New York Yankees? Were they always the the powerhouse that they are today? And the answer, I think, to some degree, to a considerable degree, is that no, they weren't. And the reason they became the Yankees uh, in the 1920s, quite apart from the acquisition of Babe Ruth from the Boston Red Sox, which is always um, cited as an example, is the fact that they had an owner, Colonel Jacob Rupert, the brewery magnate, um, who was interested in, uh, unlike I think most baseball owners of that era, he was interested in spending a fair amount of money to build a uh, a uh, a winning team and he had a uh, mildly eccentric curiously self-effacing and altogether very interesting general manager um through the that those years which is from the, roughly from world war 1 uh through the early 30s named miller huggins um not so well remembered today but but absolutely critical to the to the historic success of the New York Yankees obviously his time at the Yankees was in later years overshadowed by figures like Casey Stengel and others but Miller Huggins was really the the ball playing architect he, he had a law degree by the way but was a had been a player and and was arguably perhaps might even the most important manager in the history of the game in that regard anyway interesting book and Ed Acorn uh, who has a great love for um, baseball history, and especially early baseball history has, has um, I think, made the whole story very interesting. That is followed by a piece by Kevin Kosar, occasional contributor to these pages, um, of a new book from John Diulio, um, who is a, a government professor at the University of Pennsylvania, um, who served briefly in the um, second Bush administration. Um, but is one who has pondered the question of um, what do we expect from government and how do we make government work? Anyway, his book is a short book he's written from Templeton Press entitled Bring Back the Bureaucrats, Why More Federal Workers Will Lead to Better and Smaller Government. And he has a very interesting and to some degree persuasive argument that the the problem of big government is not the size of the bureaucracy, even though the government has expanded its purview dramatically over the decades the number of pointy-headed bureaucrats, uh, to use Governor Wallace's famous phrase, um, has really remained um, rather constant over the last few decades, and it isn't the the solution is not um, uh, let's just double or triple the number of federal employees, but let us make federal service remake federal service in a way that those federal employees we have are first-class federal employees, and that we have a a slim down um, slim, taut, tough federal bureaucracy that uh, gives taxpayers uh, value for their money. Interesting argument and interesting book and interesting piece which uh, Kevin Kosar has written to make it all comprehensible to us laymen. That is followed by a a review by Richard Tada of a book entitled Christianity and Monasticism in Aswan and Nubia, which is published by the American University in Cairo. It's actually an edited collection of Essays. It sounds like a terribly arcane subject, but actually it's a subject, as I say, torn from the headlines because it's about some of the uh, considerable archaeology that has been uncovered in recent times of the Christian presence in Egypt and um, who was involved and how old it is. And and I think you need only look at the the distressing film of ISIS um, destroying uh, pre-Islamic. Uh, architecture and Christian churches and um, m- m- historical monuments in the Middle East to recognize and appreciate the extent to which uh, these Coptic frescoes and monasteries and other things are imperilled by by modern times. Um, it's a It's a somewhat um, disturbing essay, but an important one and a very interesting one. When people talk about the the plight of the Coptic Christians in Egypt um, and elsewhere, you will now fully understand what they mean. That is followed by an interesting review by Algus Valionis, who often writes on musical topics for me, a book entitled Leningrad, Siege and Symphony by Brian Moynihan, which is about the Russian composer Dmitry Shostakovich's 7th Symphony, which was written and first performed during the German siege of Leningrad. He, Shostakovich, was actually there at the time. And of course, there was that hideous 900-day siege of Leningrad when the city was basically starved and frozen, although not into submission. And the Seventh Symphony of Shostakovich, which has a very familiar uh, kind of uh, repetitive theme, um, has always been regarded as a tribute to um, the uh, resilience of Leningrad, now St. Petersburg, um, uh, against the onslaught uh, from Hitler. And in fact, uh, what we know um, from Shostakovich's own writings and pronouncements is it in fact was a tribute to the city of Leningrad, the Leningrad Symphony, um, for what it endured not only under Hitler but under Stalin as well, um, especially in the 1930s. So it's an interesting uh, kind of new interpretation of Shostakovich's 7th and um, um really tells you a great deal about um, how to understand and, and better appreciate a composer who I think is a little bit less appreciated today than he might, uh, might well be. Um, no movie review this week from John Padhoritz, I regret to say, but we do have an essay by Joe Queenan on an interesting question of when you go to an organic restaurant and they provide free reading material, as just as in a barbershop or something else, um, what kind of free reading material should they be offering? And the free reading material that he has found uh, is almost exactly the opposite of what you would expect. Anyway, it's a problem that has occurred to a lot of us, and Joe Queenan analyzes it in his characteristic and customary way. So I thank you very much for joining me this week for this little um, uh, tour of the Books and Arts section. I look forward very much to talking with you about our next issue next week.